Last night, Steve spoke about the defilements that visit the mind. And tonight, I want to talk about the seven factors of enlightenment. So you have an understanding of that there are other things that visit the mind as well. Wholesome qualities of mind that are actually present and waiting to be nurtured. Seeds that are waiting to be watered. So I want to talk about these seven factors in a way that you can uh, recognize them in your own practice. Because some of you were already today reporting some bits of of these seven factors. Understanding uh, what they are in your own mind would be really important for your practice. This is kind of a scholarly uh, Dhamma talk. So I hope you'll, you'll bear with it. It's giving you a glimpse of one of the most important discourses that the Buddha gave during his time. But if you stay with it and you can stay awake, at the end there'll be a little surprise for you. Um, (laughs) And we're not passing out chocolates either. It's something even better than that. So this talk is recognizing the seven factors of awakening in our own practice. One of the most important pieces of advice given by the Buddha at the end of his life actually was this. You are the light. You are the refuge. There is no place to take refuge but in yourself. And those words are often a reminder to me that the seeds of liberation, the seeds of awakening, are very close by. They're within our own very heart and mind. They're uh, uh, able to be uh, nurtured and grown uh, from this precious birth that we have taken. A few years ago, I was taking my usual yearly personal retreat in Burma, where we often go for retreat practice and uh, for doing other things, visiting friends and doing some support uh, there in in Burma with helping to build some schools. And so I went to our teacher, Sayadawji Upandita, to formally greet him at that time. And so after I greeted him, he's very direct and he he doesn't waste any words. So he said, what are you here for? I mean, (laughs) almost exactly like that. You have to really read him that that isn't being impolite or anything. It's... He just wants to know, um, short and to the point, he would always say. So he said, you have come from far away, and this is precious time for you, away from your family. What are you here for? So I responded to him also very forthrightly that I'm here to continue to purify my own heart. To, I might have used actually the words, I'm here to clean my heart. There had been a renewed sense of urgency in my practice, a renewed sense of ardency and a willingness to to just go for it, whatever that meant for that period of time. I wanted to face whatever was necessary to face, to to face uh, what the deep defilements of the heart and mind are, especially the deeper layers of delusion. Of course, I wanted to expose new understandings that would help me to walk on the path. And I think this is what all of us come for. 
when we come to a retreat, no matter whether we're fairly new to the practice or we've been on that path a long time, which many of you have. I wanted to uh, get to the place where I could really face delusion, face ignorance, and, and see it straight on without backing away from it. So his advice to me was this. You must be willing to invest everything you have in the Dhamma, in your practice. You must be willing to invest everything you have in your practice in the Dhamma. So I thought that was a really interesting way to put it. Because usually we hear about letting go of everything. But he put it in a way of investing everything that you have in the Dhamma, in your practice. So I reflected on that just a little bit, and I came to understand that what uh, Sayadaw Upandita wanted me to see were those seeds of awakening that were already in my heart, already in my mind, just as they are in all of yours. That's what he wanted me to invest in the practice. That's how I interpreted that, to bring forth the qualities naturally in the mind stream, natural strengths that were already there for the deeper purification of greed and hatred and delusion. So to strengthen them further in a balanced way is what he was asking me to do through the continuity of practice. So these are gradually being developed as we practice here. They're naturally being developed through uh, the practice of mindful attention, mindful awareness that we're being guided in here. Because of the support of this relative seclusion, the silence that we can have so that we're not so distracted by anybody else's views and opinions, we're just constantly hearing the Dhamma. And I, I always reflect on that when I go to a retreat, that where is it in the world, how precious it is to be in an environment where you're just constantly hearing the Dhamma, the natural ways of how it is, and can we connect with that in our hearts, and to get the support of everybody around so that nobody's trying to pull on your energy or push on your energy, but just a way that you can be by yourself. We can all be by ourselves in this supportive atmosphere. Very important to see more deeply so that we're not so distracted by this and that. So it's our commitment to explore what's really going on inside, beneath the usual uh, radar that we always are putting out there of life so we can keep ourselves in the survival mode. And of course, acting and speaking wisely in the world. But this is a deeper way for us. It's a We call this, of course, intensive retreating. So we all want to realize the Dhamma. We experience that. We might articulate it in different ways. We might want to understand how we can experience more peace in our hearts. We want to know how to uh, see things clearly so that we can respond with uh, skillful ways of speaking and acting in the world. And then, of course, in those ways, we bring a lot of harmony around us. We feel the harmony within us. 
So these seven factors give the mind and the heart the strength, the refined balance that's needed to pierce through delusion, to really pay attention so that it's the opposite of ignorance. We're not ignoring what's going on. We're being more and more fully present. So I want to repeat them generally, and I want to give a a glimpse view of each one of them. Maybe stay a little bit more on mindful awareness, because that's the main practice that we're doing. I'm going to be repeating them all along, so if you don't get them all down now, I'm sure you'll catch up along the way, those of you who are taking notes. So the first one is mindfulness itself, mindful awareness. It's called sati in the Pali language, that ancient language that recorded the teachings of the Buddha. It's the linking factor, the activating factor for all the others. So see if you can just try to take this in and not try to memorize it, but just take it in as you understand it in that moment. The next three are energizing factors. They are investigation, the second one is energy or effort, and the third one is the delight in practice, the joy that comes in practicing. The next three are stabilizing factors, so this is a balance to the uh, energizing factors. The stabilizing factors are calm, concentration, and equanimity. So these are very, very balanced in and of themselves as a whole, and within each one there's a balance to each one that we learn how to hold in our practice. The knowledge of these qualities and being able to assess where you, assess where you are in your own practice is very valuable for each one of us, for each one of you. It's been a source of empowerment for my own practice, uh, a source of when, when I can recognize that they're happening, uh, even just momentarily, I feel a great deal of faith, a great deal of confidence. And we need that all along the way, every bit of the way in our practice. So the term for these factors is bojanga, bojanga. And this word is composed of two parts to help you to understand the meaning of this word. The first uh, part of this word is from the word bodhi, B-O-D-H-I, and that denotes enlightenment. The second part, anga, in bojanga, means factor or limbs. So these are the factors or the limbs of enlightenment. Uh, that release the mind and the heart from suffering. One of the Buddha's disciples asked him, how far is this name applicable? That's the way it was translated in, in English. And the Buddha said, these factors conduce to enlightenment. That is why they are so called. So it's important to be carefully aware of when they arise in our practice, and they may only be just momentarily. But when you see them momentarily, you know that the seeds are awakening in us. That's why they're called factors of awakening also. They're the causes and conditions that nourish and contribute to a fully awakened mind and heart, a fully enlightened mind and heart. 
One of the most powerful causes and conditions for these factors to arise is when a relaxed, continuous, yet very clear uh, moment-to-moment mindfulness is practiced here. That's why there's a great deal of emphasis on continuity here in the practice. Not that kind of stiff, soldier, military-like continuity, but it's more of a very relaxed uh, way that we can hold the practice. When we apply mindfulness to any uh, experience that becomes obvious, sometimes we call it the predominant experience, the, the experience that's in the foreground of the attention. There are many experiences that we can pay attention to, and sometimes we can get quite confused where to go. Some uh, couple of people were expressing that today. You don't have to pay attention to everything. It's the most obvious the one that's in the foreground of your attention. When I got confused about that, I remember telling Sayadaw Upandita about it, and I said, I don't know where to go. There's too many things happening. And he said, what's in the foreground? And I said, what's in the foreground? He said, what is in the background? I said, many things. And he said very bluntly, leave them there. (laughs) In the background, you know. So it's just like, leave them alone. You don't have to go all over looking for them. What mindfulness is being mindful of is categorized in what is called the four foundations of mindfulness. And this is something very important for practitioners of uh, this practice to know about. Probably almost all of you, if not all of you, know about them already, these four foundations of mindfulness. So awareness is being mindful of sensations experienced in the body. That's the first one. And the second one is feelings, these pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral feelings. In Pali, these are called Vedana. The third one is mindfulness of the quality of mind. This is citta, citta nupasana, mindfulness of mind. And this is a mind that is, it can be pure, it can be, uh, there can be an absence of any of the defilements. Of course, that can be quite rarefied and it takes some practice to experience that. Or it can be uh, tainted by any of the wholesome or uh, unwholesome states of mind or filled with the wholesome states of mind. So we come to know what the mind is being filled with, how, what the quality of the mind is in the moment. The fourth foundation of mindfulness is called mindfulness of dhammas, or all the, all the mental activities that can be experienced. And mostly, these are categorized in um, many ways that we understand the dhamma, uh, the natural laws of the way things are, like the five hindrances that Steve spoke about last night, the seven factors of enlightenment that I'm speaking about this evening. They can be the four foundations of mindfulness that I just mentioned, which this is the fourth one. So there, there are others, but I just want to keep it simple now. When I would ask Manindra, what is that? What is the fourth foundation of mindfulness anyway? He said, too many to name. There are anything else that's everything else that's not included in the first three. So, okay, that made it really simple for me. 
So in our practice of mindful awareness, when it's applied to whichever of these three is naturally occurring, not something that we're trying to figure out what's happening now or that we turn our attention to uh, intentionally, whatever is naturally appearing in sitting, walking, standing, or lying down in any one of the four postures of the body, in all activities, it's not just in sitting and walking or laying down, being still, but in the activities of walking or working or changing diapers or doing our schoolwork, working on the computer, all activities. So where there is a gentle, steadfast continuity of, a, of uh, awareness. And so this doesn't have to be that, that deep awareness, that kind of, Uh, goes very deep into the experience, a lot of times it's more general awareness of what's going on. And that's fine too, to keep it general. We keep the thread of awareness electrified in our practice. And sometimes when we're sitting or walking and there's uh, more stillness in the body and the mind, there's more concentration, we can see more deeply into the moment-to-moment experience. So it's either general or very profound, very deep. So when we do this, it results in the maturing of the practice and the strengthening of each one of those factors. The Buddha said that if the four foundations of mindfulness are practiced persistently and repeatedly, the seven factors of enlightenment will be automatically and fully developed. So that was one of the promises of the Buddha. So persistently and repeatedly are some of the key words there. Not with stiffness or rigidity, but with gentleness and that gentle persevering effort that we have. This has always been such a reassuring promise to me when I've remembered this uh, saying of the Buddha, these words of the Buddha. The Buddha also connects this development of the seven factors to liberating knowledge And so this passage from the Buddha, from the numerical discourses, he says to his um, disciples around him, I declare that liberation by supreme knowledge has its nutriment, and it is not without a nutriment. And what is the nutriment of liberation by supreme knowledge? The seven factors of enlightenment is the answer. So this is a a very profound and important Dhamma talk uh, that um, it's important to take in even if we don't understand it. And I want to say here that there were many times in in the beginning and during the course of my practice where I didn't understand what was going on or what was being said. And so I was always told by my first and beloved teacher, Manindraji, that Just listen, even though you don't understand it, sometimes it will come to you, it will come forth, come forward in your mind and your heart, and you'll connect it with your actual experience, and that's what's important. I have to confess that there were lots of times, Manindra was so kind to all of his students, lots of times I would actually fall asleep when he was talking, you know. It said, and it's really true, Joseph tells his story, that Manindra had so much delight 
and he was he had such an investigative mind in in the dhamma and the pra, in his own practice and he he had so much happiness to share the dhamma that if you asked him one question he would just keep going until you know you weren't there anymore or till the last person in the room left and even if you were half asleep he would keep going so um there was one time Steve and I was, were asking him a question. He came to visit us and we asked him the question, something that was um, very subtle in, uh, and not, we didn't understand it so much in the Dhamma. And he, so he kept giving us uh, Dhamma talks about that. It, it actually went on for about two days. I'm, I'm telling the truth. It was like that time, and then we went to bed. And the next day, we were in the car, and we were going along. And he said, remember, you asked me the question. And then he would say, there is more to that. It's very, very enthusiastic. So this Dhamma teaching is meant to help you become more aware in your own practice, more knowledgeable about what's happening. Uh, able to recognize these factors for yourselves, and by recognizing them, you strengthen them. It's really interesting in the Dhamma when there's mindfulness of the hindrances, they actually begin to get weakened. They weaken. But there's when there's recognition or mindfulness of the wholesome factors, they get stronger. So recognize the, the wholesome factors in your practice. Be sure to do that. So much... We hear so much about the defilements sometimes that we forget about these wholesome factors. Know where you need to put more energy in your practice. Know where you need to back off a little bit, where you might be striving. Uh, Last year I was doing some practice in Nepal, and uh, there wasn't, Upandita wasn't around, so I had to start recognizing this for myself. So I thought, in the beginning of my practice, I thought, oh, well, Sayadawji isn't here right now. He actually um, uh, suggested that I go there to practice. And so I thought, what will I do? And I had this kind of fleeting thought, which actually stood. It, it stayed. And then I, I thought in the beginning, I'll try to recognize what factors are developing And then I forgot all about it. And all of a sudden, in the middle of the practice, maybe it was around the second week that I was there, the mind just started to review, oh, this factor is now present, and this one isn't there yet, or it needs a little more developing. And so I just started to see automatically what was going on. And I felt a sense of empowerment during that time. I felt a sense of great faith that, This can happen without somebody around always kind of guiding me. So try to notice them even if they're fleeting for you. We take refuge in ourselves, which is what I quoted at the very beginning, that uh, it's most important to take refuge in the Dhamma in yourself in the practice. And when we see these wholesome qualities, that's when we start and, or when we continue or we strengthen that taking refuge in ourselves, taking refuge in our own potential for awakening, taking refuge in Buddha nature, in our own hearts and minds. When we take refuge in the morning, 
taking refuge in the Buddha means that, to take refuge in our own potential to awaken. So of the seven, there are these three energizing factors, which I mentioned, investigation, energy, and delight in the practice, balanced by the three stabilizing or tranquilizing factors, calm, concentration, equanimity, and the one linking factor, which is mindfulness. It balances all, it uh, links all of them. So I'll take a little time to fill each one in and give you a glimpse of them and uh, to let you know how they manifest and how they function. It just helps you to have a greater kind of even theoretical understanding about this. It's important, as Steve said last night, to hear the Dhamma. Even though we we may not connect with it experientially right now, it's important to hear it. So the first one is mindful awareness. Mindfulness, awareness. It's called sati, as I mentioned before, S-A-T-I. That's the Pali word for it. It's not an easy quality to know because usually we're so concerned with the object of mindfulness. In the four foundations of mindfulness, I named the various objects. But actually, mindfulness itself can be one of those objects. Awareness itself can be one of those objects. And citta nupasana is awareness of the mind, the third uh, of the four foundations. What we want to explore when we're looking at mindfulness itself is how it functions and how it manifests, even in a theoretical way like this. The word sati in Pali means steadfast attentiveness. That's one of the ways that it is translated, steadfast attentiveness to the present experience, not to remembering the past or thinking about the future. It's to the present moment's experience. It's a wakefulness. That's one of the English words used to describe sati. Wakefulness, presence of mind is another one. The function in the Abhidhamma, the Buddhist psychology, is not forgetting. Another word to express that, another way, is to remember. Again, it's not remembering the past or the future. It's remembering to be awake in this present moment. So this means that we're not ignoring what's going on. Sati is the direct opposite of ignorance. So when, as, as we practice this mindful awareness over and over again, practicing sati, it's the antidote to ignorance. Therefore, there's an absence of confusion when one is totally awake in the moment. It's very clear what is going on. It manifests as the mind that comes face to face with the experience, another one of the descriptions in the Buddhist psychology, in the Abhidhamma. Not just experience of daily life um, situations, of course that's important in mindful attention, but in this kind of practice that we're doing here, it's mindfulness and being face-to-face with our moment-to-moment experience. As fleeting as it is, the mind and heart can know the experience very clearly 
without ignoring one bit of it. So in the commentaries, it's likened to a clean, clear, well-made mirror without any distortion in it. So when this mirror is face facing whatever is being experienced momentarily or situationally, it's without distorting anything, without ignoring anything, without denying any part of it, without adding any part of it, without trying to fix anything. The 4th century Taoist Chuang Tzu said, the perfect man and woman, I add, uses the mind as a mirror. It clings to nothing. It refuses nothing. It receives but does not keep. That means that if there is a pleasant experience being noticed, there's nothing in the mind that goes out and gets attached to it. If there's unpleasant experiences being known, there's nothing in the mind that has aversion that goes out and pushes it away. So it doesn't refuse, it doesn't cling. It just reflects what's going on very purely. There's no bias at all. Of course, in daily life situations, this means it results in greater discernment of how to respond. It sees life very, very clearly. In our moment-to-moment experience, there's greater discernment to see the impermanent, impersonal, um, unsatisfactory nature of all experience, even on a moment-to-moment level. I can still hear you know, Manindra's voice just saying all this in the very beginning when I'd a lot of times be half asleep in my... My first retreat, I was... A lot of you were describing sleepiness, sloth and torpor. I'm not exaggerating. In my first retreat, I was asleep at least half the time. <laughs> it takes training to learn how to be awake, you know, in, when we're still and the eyes are closed. So in Manindra's voice, I can still hear his beautiful East Indian inflection when he spoke that he would say, please be mindful of every moment-to-moment experience without adding anything, without complaining, (laughs) without judging, without condemning, without comparing, without commenting. And one day when I really heard what he said, I thought, that's really hard to do. (laughs) It's not easy to do just that, to just be mindful of whatever's happening, what's going on in the body without complaining about it, Of, of seeing a person that I didn't particularly like without judging you know, or, you know, you're always looking down in, in retreat of seeing shoes I liked without wanting, you know. <laughs> it's really hard not to add anything else. So it really takes a lot of training to do that. So I mentioned that sati means to remember, to remember to be awake to the present moment. Not just to remember the present moment, But there's a little more to that. It's to remember to be awake in the present moment, fully awake, 
to know really what's happening without adding, without comparing, without judging. And even later on, you, there's more refinement in the practice and one begins to know that this sati, this understanding of wakefulness, means also knowing when the mind is being awake. It's a kind of uh, wise reflection, that kind of uh, wisdom that knows, oh, the mind is being awake. And it gives one a lot of confidence to know that. Of course, it's easier to do this when someone is reminding us, like when we give the instructions in the morning. I myself, you know, I'm sitting there hearing Steve, and okay, he says this, all right, I'll do that. The next thing he says, okay, I'll do that. As soon as he stops talking, it's like, oh, get awake. You know, what's happening now? I have to keep reminding to be awake in the present moment. There has to be this resolve to be continuous in that uh, intention to be awake, to be patient with the practice, to be willing to begin again and again. There are so many moments when we forget. And there's going to still be those moments, no matter how long you've been practicing. There are still moments of forgetting now. The difference between now and 35 years ago is that it's, it doesn't bother the mind so much to forget. It's just another moment that, okay, there was wandering mind. It's just another moment of knowing, of being present with that. So the willingness to begin over and over and to accomplish this, we can't give up on ourselves. We really just keep it simple when it gets too complicated. Back off when you need to back off. One of the teachers, um, when it was really difficult for me, and that both of the teachers didn't know what to do, Upandita was uh, the one translating to a Nepalese teacher, and I was so distraught and didn't know how to be mindful, and uh, they didn't know how to respond. I guess I was kind of on the floor in a puddle of tears, and um, I think there weren't as many Americans reporting in that way to them. <laughs> it, was, it was a while ago in the 80s. And um, so the Nepalese teacher listened to Upandita and then he didn't know what to say. And so he looked at me and he said, when you don't know what to do, because I was talking about the walking practice, he said, just mindfully bend down then mindfully pull up your socks, (laughs) then mindfully get up again, and then mindfully begin again. And I thought, okay. I was much younger then. I I was always given the advice to just take the advice in like a child because you can trust them. So I did, and that's what I did. And it was just coming out of nowhere. This is not in the suttas, you know, this pulling up your socks. So um, I still do it, you know, and take a break, bend down and pull up your socks, begin again. I remember going to Manindraji and telling him, I think Steve told a little bit of the story last night, and I would say, I can't do this. I just can't do this. And he'd say, I'm not asking you to cut the jungle. 
you know, coming from parts of the world he comes from. I'm just asking you to be mindful. But to me, it would be easier to cut the jungle at that time, you know. And I would know, I, in looking back, it, I would remember that I was really kind of depending on him to hold me together, to like, I couldn't go without talking to him or getting his advice. And one time he said to me in a very stern way, he said, the teacher can only show you the way. You yourself have to walk the way, not me. You have to do it yourself. And in that way, you'll gain your own strength. It's not my strength you need. It's your own strength. So that's why the Buddha said, you are the light. You are the refuge. It's important to take refuge in yourself. So the characteristic of sati is non-superficiality. That means you're not skimming on the surface of things. You're not just trying to figure things out by even spiritual thinking. You're really seeing what's going on deep within uh, that moment. It's not like a cork floating on the surface of the water. It's like when you put a stone on the surface of the water and it sinks to the bottom. That means it sees what's going on beneath the surface of things. And this needs to be seen over and over and over again. That's where the insights arise in practice, because it reveals the true nature of reality. It's not just seeing what's going on at the surface level. In the Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha said that there are seven benefits of this practice of sati is satipatthana. The first benefit is the purification of mind. These are, it's also very important understanding to know when you're in this practice. The second benefit is the overcoming of sorrow. The third benefit is the overcoming of lamentation. The fourth is the elimination of physical pain. Now, wouldn't we all like that? That's the promise I kept on uh, believing. And it's true. There are sometimes the physical pain goes away. The fifth is the elimination of mental pain. The sixth is the entering on the right path. And the seventh is, because of that, it takes one towards the attainment of Nibbāna. So when one has a quality of mindfulness, there is carefulness about their speech and behavior that comes from a deep inner attitude of being really clear, attentive, wakeful to what's going on in the present moment. Because when one is that way, there's a lot of confidence because one can see life clearly as it is. It's not... One doesn't feel distant or removed. Sometimes people call this uh, mindfulness kind of like the witness, just standing by, almost doing nothing. But that's not true at all. There's a participatory awareness that goes on where one really is participating in life, not just standing on the side and being mindful of what's going on, but knowing what's clearly happening. So this first, which I wanted to spend more time on, mindfulness is the linking, the balancing factor that develops all the other factors.
The, seventh one, uh, the second one is investigation. This is the first of the energizing factors activated by mindfulness. This is investigation of the present moment. The same thing as mindful, attention, investigation of the present moment. Not of what happened in the past, although sometimes the mind reflects on that a little bit in an investigative Dhamma way. That's okay when that comes, you know, just spontaneously, of course. Or when we put our minds to it, we investigate it that way, and we know that investigation is happening of, uh, in that way. But it's in our intensive practice moment to moment here, it's investigation of the present moment's experience. It's not by psychoanalyzing what's going on. Sometimes, of course, that comes in a very spontaneous way, and we can let it be. We don't have to push it away. It's not philosophizing, even in a spiritual way, and in, from any spiritual tradition or trying to compare it with anything else we know. It's not trying to uh, even understand it in terms of all the scientific knowledge that's being um, known and, and uh, understood more because of the Dhamma, and the Dhamma's being understood more because of scientific knowledge also. But it's, it's putting that aside in our moment-to-moment investigation, directly experiencing the present moment. And so in retreat, I just wanted to give you an example of how this can be experienced in retreat and how uh, investigation is not the right kind of investigation in retreat. There was a time when, in my walking practice when uh, a lot of uh, emotion was being released. And it uh, wasn't so much with the emotional part of it because I was just thinking a lot about a troublesome a very troublesome and troubling relationship that I was going through. And during that time, I kept reviewing that relationship, why it happened that way, of course, why I was right and that person was wrong, and what I was going to write in a letter, you know, and I would take notes so I wouldn't forget. And by the way, I'd, I'd look at the end of the retreat and look at my notes and say, I have no idea what that means, you know. <laughs> And so I would go over and over and over this, and I would feel actually dizzy, mentally dizzy, from like going in a circle about all of this, trying to resolve it, trying to understand it uh, in a psychological way. So I went to the teacher, and I reported this to Sayadawji, and I said, if constant thinking is happening, Of course, you know, we have to say everything that's going on, not to be ashamed of what's going on. Constant thinking is happening, and the mind won't get off of it. There's also feelings of anger and frustration. And so, in in his own way, Sayadaw Pandita said, withdraw your energy from the thinking, from the content of thinking. And I got the feeling that it's like... Just kind of, the the energy was all out here. Just withdraw that energy and place the attention on what's going on, the feeling of that anger, the feeling of that emotion. And so he helped me to understand that we must connect and sustain the attention on that feeling, on that direct experience of frustration, anger, whatever it is, to rub the attention on it.
And so he asked me to do that and say, when that happens, what goes on? Is there tension? What are you experiencing? Tension, pressure. Notice what's naturally occurring when that goes on. And so then he would ask, is this controllable or uncontrollable? And I would say, uncontrollable, Bhante, venerable sir. Is it permanent or impermanent? It's impermanent. Is it satisfactory or unsatisfactory? Of course, it's unpleasant, unsatisfactory. This is the kind of investigation that we're doing in our practice. This dhamma vichaya, this investigation, looking deeply into the nature of reality. So not being with the content and and seeing if we can be with just the process, just the moving parts of our experience. So that's the first of the energizing uh, qualities, investigation activated by mindfulness. And the second is the uh, energy or effort, viriya. And this energy or effort is not to change what's going on, not the effort to change or to perfect or to improve or to get rid of, but it's the energy just to be with the present moment. Steve explained that um, the other evening. about What kind of energy does it take? And gave the example of just taking your attention and feeling your right hand, for example. How much energy does that take? can just take a moment to feel that in between words. How does it feel? It doesn't take that much energy, but it takes doing that persistently in a gentle way. And when we forget to begin again, it's that kind of energy that we need to put forth in the practice. I just wanted to um, use this talk to channel some of our grandfather teacher's words, Mahasi Sayadaw. This is in his book that we've been translating, uh, How to Practice Vipassana, which hopefully after five years it'll be done and um, able to, for you to take a look at. He says, if you begin your practice with too much energy, you will become overzealous and restless later, and your practice will not improve. On the other hand, if you begin your practice with too little energy, your effort will not be strong enough for your practice to improve and you will become lethargic. So you should exert a moderate effort in practice, a balanced effort, reducing effort when it's too strenuous, boosting energy when it's too weak. So finding a balance in in our practice with energy. It's said that if awareness, investigation, and energy are applied, all the remaining uh, factors of enlightenment will naturally arise. These three that I just talked about are the three that we put most of our attention to, what we have to understand uh, most deeply. So the third energizing quality is called piti, P-I-T-I in uh, Pali. It's joy, but it's a, a certain kind of joy. It's not just the joy because we're going to have chocolate or ice cream sometime in retreat. Ooh, I hope you will. <laughs> I hope I'm not making the wanting mind come up. 
So it's, it's actually a particular kind of delight. It's delight in practice. It's actually delight in the Dhamma. And we feel that when somebody expressed it today, somebody is saying that today he felt, all of a sudden he felt the mind have joy. That's piti. That's the delight in the practice because we just feel that some of the hindrances are not there in the moment. We feel a lot of energy. And actually when we feel that, a couple of people said that today, there's kind of a, um, a little laugh that comes out of the mind and body and heart. There's a saying, the pleasure of the Dhamma excels all other pleasures. And this, even through all the dukkha, the suffering that what we go through, we can have these few moments in our practice, and that's what brings us back over and over again. It's so powerful. So this quality is, it feels like a sense of there's lightness, agility in the mind and the body. There's a willingness to see experience, to receive it, to know experience. The mind is infused with energy. And it becomes very workable. It's not like something can happen and we don't lose faith in ourselves, lose confidence in ourselves. Sometimes we feel a kind of floating or a rocking going on when we're sitting still, a swaying. It can become very, very pleasant. Sometimes uh, there can be bolts of energy that swiftly go through the body uh, that we feel. One of the kinds of PT is called overwhelming PT, when we feel uh, kind of lifted off the ground by maybe a kind of wave came, and it, it feels like we're floating, and then we're back on the earth again. So sometimes it feels like we're so light, the body and mind are so light when you're walking, it feels like you're walking on water. You know, there's a little bit of shifting happening. Um, So Upandita during this time would always ask us, do you like this? (laughs) And he would say, I would say, yes. And he'd say, be careful, because the wanting mind can come up. You know, just kind of holding on to that experience. So those are the three energizing factors. Investigation, energy, delight. And now to take a glimpse of the three stabilizing factors. The first one is calm or tranquility, and this is called pasadi. Remember the delight when we had uh, in, in the previous time, the delight in practice, piti. Uh, just want to go back for a moment. Piti is uh, the experiential or subjective experience of piti is like when you're walking in, de- in a desert and you see an oasis kind of far away and you, you have some delight and energy in your practice, and you know there's water nearby, so you can keep going. But pasadi, this calm and, and tranquility, is like you actually get to that oasis, and the water is actually there. It's not a mirage. And you drink the water, and it's a feeling of when you drink the water, it's very stabilizing and calming in the body and in the mind. So we start to see the shift in our practice from that delight, that energy, even when it's joyful, to calmness, tranquility in our practice. So again, just um, 
bringing out Mahasi Sayadaw in, in his words, you will find that you are continuously calm and tranquil in all activities, or in many of them, walking, standing, sitting, lying down, bending, stretching, and so on. You may even feel like you're floating on air. Due to this tranquility, you are likely to feel that your practice is effortless. And this is when we stop noting, using words, and we feel that just spontaneous noticing very clearly is happening. So this is an important part of practice. We feel that it's effortless at this time. So this calmness sort of settles more into the stabilizing factor of concentration, or samadhi. This um, is undistracted attention. It's when we feel like we don't really need to look at everything that calls our attention. The, The mind feels like it can be with the walking and just be with the walking. It can be in the with the body, what's going on in the body, what's going on in the mind. And we're not distracted by noises that come in the hall, walking, um, people walking, people coughing. It's fine just to be with what's happening in the changing experiences of the body and the mind. No problem. The mind is undistracted. It develops out of calm. And the function of this samadhi or concentration is to collect the mind. So the mind isn't dissipated. It's not dispersed in many directions. The subjective experience at that time is a feeling of protection. It's protected from the defilements, from the hindrances. The mind can shift from one experience to another. It can even see a defilement arising, but it doesn't uh, enter this protective... um, quality of the mind. It it feels far away, or it feels like one is in kind of like this uh, protective field of concentration. So that is a protective quality of concentration. It enables one to perceive mental and physical phenomena, Mahasi Sayadaw says, in terms of both their unique characteristics and their universal characteristics of impermanence, the impersonal nature of it, the unsatisfactory nature of it. So these qualities of calm and concentration result in equanimity. This is the last of the stabilizing factors. It's when the continuity of mindfulness on changing objects is so continuous and so like it's, it's not stiff, it's not, uh, it just kind of flows along from one thing to another. It's a very balanced, spacious stillness. That's a subjective experience. It's not kind of narrowing in on anything. There can be a very wide field. And anything that arises in that field, the mind just receives. And the main feature of equanimity is there's an absence of reactivity to whatever happens. When something pleasant arises, it doesn't react with the wanting mind. When something unpleasant arises, it doesn't react with the aversive mind. And if something boring occurs, like sometimes calm can be very boring if we don't know what's happening, 
there's no reactivity with that kind of neutral experience. There's no reactivity of delusion. So greed, hatred, and delusion are completely not in the mind during that time. The inner and outer conditions are known very, very clearly with great balance, with great clarity. And therefore, there's a greater possibility of wisdom for wisdom to arise. There's a very stable inner sense with the changing conditions and uh, inner conditions and outer conditions. And it's said that when one is experiencing this this kind of equanimity, uh, which is called uh, sankara upeka, upeka is the uh, Pali word for equanimity. Sankara is are all the conditions that arise. So when this sankara upeka is present, it's called the doorway to peace, because it's the particular uh, purified mind state that happens right before the the mind enters uh, into nibbana. In the Sutta Nipata, the Buddha says, when there is nothing in the world that can trigger agitation, then one is free from the pain of longing. It's a very exalted state of mind that bears the fruit of complete liberation. That's why it's called the doorway to peace, the doorway to the unconditioned. So these are the seven factors of awakening, the seven factors of enlightenment mindfulness, investigation, energy, joyful interest in our practice, calm, concentration, and equanimity. And when we develop these, then we really feel, as the Buddha said, you are the light, you are the refuge. There is no place to take refuge but in yourself. So to end with, and... um, The last four minutes, I wanted to offer you this beautiful sutta uh, chanted. It's uh, the Bhujanga Sutta. It's one of the protective suttas. It's called the Bhujanga Parita. Parita means protection. And it's chanted by Dhamma Ruan, a wonderful Dhamma teacher who's living in Sri Lanka now. And when he was a young boy, it said that at the age of two years old, he began to spontaneously chant uh, these ancient suttas. uh, And they came from probably a a previous experience as a monk, they say, in his previous life. There's more to that story, and and you can find that out later. Um, You don't have to write a note to ask for it. I'll put it on the board. <laughs> in the suttas, there, there are stories where the seven factors are chanted to those who are ill. And um, when, when the Buddha himself was ill, he asked the venerable Mahakunda to recite the, this, these bojangas to him. And so there is a, a, a beautiful chant that Dhammaruan chanted when he was two years old. So I want to play that in a minute. When these, uh, this chant was, these, this sutta about the seven factors was given to the Buddha and he asked for it to be given to him, then he became cleared of his illness at that time. 
So some of the, his disciples at that time would ask the Buddha and other disciples to chant this to them. So it's a very profound healing uh, that we have in understanding and experiencing the seven factors. Even in the Mahasi monastery, there's a, an accounting. It's in a, a book that's actually published in Burma. We don't have it here of uh, many people who were healed because they went through this process of insight and all the seven factors were completely balanced. And because of that complete balancing, their minds were healed. The deep healing is in the mind and in the heart. But if they had any illness at that time, it would be healed. And this happened to Deepama. So we're going to play that now to end our, our time here together. So we can uh, take about four minutes of that and just listen, just receive it. Dhamma Ruan. Abhikamosanam 
for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.